The book of Judges will close with these words. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Why were the people of Israel living the way they were during the period of the Judges? There's no king in Israel. What happens when there's no king? Who rules when there's no king? Who determines what's good and right when there's no king? Each person does whatever seems good and feels right in the moment. This problem is not new to the period of the judges, and it's not unique to the people of Israel. In fact, the problem began in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve to rule. He made humanity to reign over the rest of creation. Adam and Eve were to be God's vice-regents. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was the royal mandate for humanity, for Adam and Eve in particular. The earth was to be a representative theocracy. In the USA, we live in a representative democracy, right? Elected officials are supposed to represent the concerns of the citizens of this nation. God created humanity ultimately to serve as a representative theocracy, where the human kings have been called and equipped to represent the concerns of the divine king, to enforce his law and his values in this world. Well, we're a long way from Eden now. What happened? Humanity, Adam and Eve, abdicated the throne. They refused to uphold and obey the Creator's law. Why? Well, it had something to do with the eyes. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Which tree are Adam and Eve looking at here? The one tree of all the trees on the planet. God said, don't eat the fruit produced by that tree. Why did they disobey? Their eyes, what they perceived with their eyes, overruled what they had heard with their ears. And thus humanity stepped off the throne of this world, and Satan took his seat. One of the main ways that Satan exercises his rule over this world is by doing absolutely nothing. He simply allows people to follow their own hearts, or in the phraseology of the book of Judges, to do what is right in their own eyes. No external temptation required, no deception necessary. Nevertheless, God remains the true king. God's law has not been replaced or eliminated just because his chosen vice-regents have chosen to relinquish their privileged position. 
And God's plan for this world has not been thwarted. Instead, he gets to work to reestablish the representative theocracy. He chose a particular family to grow into a particular nation, which he called to be a kingdom of priests with respect to the rest of the world. He revealed his law to them in which he described more fully what a human king ought to be like. As Moses is preparing the people of Israel for their entrance into the promised land, the headquarters, if you will, from which God's representative theocracy should exercise his rule over the rest of the world, Moses comments on how the people must worship and respond to God once they're living in the land of Canaan. But the principles he lays out apply more generally to all of life. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy 12, 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Moses characterizes their wanderings through the wilderness, though led by God from place to place, as doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Interesting. Verse 11. Then to the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there, There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to Yahweh. So the people don't get to decide how or where or when to worship. Yahweh chooses and makes known what they are to do. His word is to rule and determine their behavior. Verses 13 and 14. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that Yahweh will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. The people don't get to worship at any place that they see. In other words, they don't get to worship Yahweh by doing whatever is right in their own eyes. It's Yahweh's choice and revelation of a particular place, and it's Yahweh's commands that are to determine, shape, and rule their behavior. While these words focus on worship practices for the people of Israel, I'm convinced that the principles apply beyond to all of life. Unfortunately, the corollary plays out too often in our lives. We follow our feelings. We follow our heart. And of course, our culture indoctrinates us with this message in so many ways. We do whatever is right and good in our own eyes. Now, in one limited sense, this may have been true of the people of Israel during their time in the wilderness, but it seems that during the period of the judges, this was true in every sense. This morning, we have to look at what one of my professors at Wheaton describes as one of the darkest pictures of Israelite life in the entire Old Testament. Another writer refers to what unfolds in Judges chapter 19 as the most horrible story of the Hebrew Bible. But we need to consider this horrific story. We need to see the trajectory of doing whatever is right in our own eyes. We need to see what we are all capable of if we follow the rule of our eyes instead of the rule of our great King Jesus. I drew attention during the announcements to the note in your sermon notes, at the top of the sermon notes this morning. And if you're familiar with these final chapters of Judges, then you knew this was coming. 
This morning we're going to talk about some very uncomfortable topics. Judges 19 tells a horrifically true story that features some of the worst violence and abuse of women that you can imagine. It is abuse perpetrated by a religious person, a Levite. It is abuse perpetrated against a woman by a man who was supposed to care for and protect her. And it ends up becoming violent sexual abuse committed by many against one woman. The biblical narrator is sensitive about the details, but he very much wants us to see this woman and to sympathize with her, to grieve over her treatment and to see this violence, to see this abuse as utterly abhorrent to God, deserving of His wrath and judgment. But the narrator most of all, wants us to see that this is where following your heart, doing whatever is right in your own eyes, will lead you to greater and greater debauchery, greater and greater sinfulness, and greater and greater hardness against God and His Word. I'm going to read aloud Judges chapter 19 now. Follow along. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. 
And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and what, where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of Yahweh. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, The men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. story begins telling us, reminding us of the situation in general in Israel. There was no king in Israel. And the implication again is, if there were a king, but not just any king, a king who would uphold the law of Moses, a king who would live like the king was supposed to live according to the law of Moses, if that king were ruling Israel, then this kind of thing would not happen. 
But there is no king in Israel. And we're introduced to a certain Levite here. A certain Levite. And if we remember back to chapter 17 and 18, that story too featured a certain Levite. And we find out that this Levite is from the, he's sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. That's the same place that we were in in chapter 17 and 18. We remember the story of Micah and how he had hired his son as his own priest. And then when a Levite came through town, he hired him as his personal priest. And then the tribe of Dan came in and hired him away from them. And so Micah was left with nothing. And so if we didn't know the rest of the story, we might wonder, well, is this Levite here going to take Micah's Levite's place? Is he going to become the new personal priest of Micah? But Micah's gone from this scenario. We see this particular Levite just wants to have a wife, it seems, and to live quietly with her, perhaps. We read about the separation between the two of them in these verses, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 introduces already a little bit of an irregularity because we find that this Levite took for himself not a wife, but a concubine, a secondary wife. Now, there's no legislation in the Mosaic Law that says whether you can or you can't or what to do when you've got one. But we know many characters in the Old Testament had them. A concubine is essentially a secondary wife who is to perform all the duties of a wife, all the responsibilities of the wife, without necessarily being able to receive the benefits or the privileges of being a wife. So it's a strange scenario. Usually what would happen is that a Jewish man would take a concubine when his own wife would not be able to produce children. And so the secondary wife was there so that she might produce children for his line when his wife was barren. But what generally happened instead was concubines were taken just simply for a man's sexual pleasure, aside from their own wife. And so this is a very sick situation from the get-go. And the strange thing here is that there's no wife mentioned. We don't know whether the Levite was married or whether he just took a concubine and refused to give her what he owed to her as a husband. It is a legal marriage in their scenario and in their culture and according to their law, but it's not normal. It's irregular and it's strange here from the get-go. She is from Bethlehem in Judah. Note that. Uh, That becomes an important part of the story as we go through. But verse 2 tells us that she was unfaithful to him. That's how the ESV translates the term. Some other versions say something like, she played the harlot or she became a prostitute. The word can mean that and usually does refer to some kind of sexual promiscuity here. But the situation is odd. Again, if she had become a prostitute, if she had committed adultery against her husband, presumably her father would not take her back into his home. It would be a shameful thing for him to do that. However, it's the period of the judges, anything goes. But there is another way of reading this text that seems to make a little bit more sense, to me at least. Many of your Bibles will have a footnote at this point. The ESV does, and it tells us that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and some old Latin uh, versions say, she became angry with him and went back home to her husband. There's actually some significant legitimacy to that reality. What we may have here is a case of homonyms. You know what a homonym is in English? It's a word that's spelled and sounds exactly the same, but has two or more very divergent meanings. So we have a lot of them in English. Bank is a good example. 
So a bank, as a noun, is a financial institution, or it's the edge of a river, uh, or we can use it as a ber- verb to bank uh, in billiards or pool where something ricochets off of something else, or we can even use it as yet with yet another meaning to bank on something means to trust or to believe that someone's going to do what they say. Those are four different words, technically. They're homonyms. They're spelled the same. We may have a case of a Hebrew homonym here where you have the Hebrew word that means to become a prostitute or the same exact spelling could mean she became enraged with him. And I tend to think that is the case here. Throughout the story, I want to give this woman the benefit of the doubt and I want to see the Levite in the most horrific terms because the narrator paints him that way. And so what I see going on here is that this concubine has been living with this Levite and she has found his treatment of her already intolerable. And so she left and went back home to her father for protection. She stays there four months and then verse 3 tells us that her husband gets up and goes to get her. And the ESV says to speak kindly to her. The Hebrew is more literally to speak to her heart. And I want to draw that out because the heart is mentioned several times in this passage. In the next paragraph, the heart is featured several times, almost in every verse. It's a major part of the story. So we note here that the Levite's intention, he goes to Bethlehem in Judah to speak to her heart, meaning to persuade her to come home to him. And at this point, we would think, okay, good job, Levite. You're going to go get your wife. She's been separated from you for four months. You're maybe softening a bit, and you want to go and bring her home. But things are about to take a weird turn. And the narrator wants us to see this, I think, by mentioning the heart so many times. So the Levite arrives in Bethlehem, and his father-in-law, the girl's father, welcomes him and meets him with joy. And so I can only imagine that the father in the story is hopeful that this is going to be a reconciliation, that this is going to be things going back to the way they're supposed to be. And so he's glad to see this Levite. This father in this story is the only good guy. He is the only good guy in the story. I'll highlight that as we go through. But he is the only good guy in the story. And so they spend three days there eating and drinking and enjoying the hospitality of this girl's father. But then verses 5 through 9 get kind of repetitive, don't they? It seems a little weird to us. where We're a party to extreme hospitality in verses 5 through 9. The father just goes way beyond what we would expect or think of as normal hospitality. Every single day. He's already been there three days, but every day he pushes him to stay longer and to enjoy eating and drinking together with him more and more and more and more. We wonder what in the world is going on. Hospitality is a huge value in Eastern culture. Still to this very day, it's way different than in the West. We don't think of hospitality quite the same way as they do in the East. And in the ancient Near East, including in Israel, it was a very high value. And so this is, yes, maybe a little extreme even by ancient standards, but nevertheless, this is a good thing. This is a really good thing. But what I want you to notice is that in almost every verse, every time the Father speaks, He mentions the heart. Note this, at the the end of verse uh, 5, He says to the Levite, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. And then again at the end of verse 6, 
Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And then at the end of verse 8, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. And then again at the end of verse 9, lodge here and let your heart be merry. But you know what we don't see throughout this whole account in these verses? The Levite speaking to the heart of the woman. What, he, what the narrator told us his intent was, was to speak to her heart. But instead, he focuses on his own heart. Getting his own heart refreshed and strengthened and built up. And the hospitality of her father makes this happen throughout the story. I'd like to quote from a lady by the name of Deirdre Brower. And I found she wrote an article on this passage that was really helpful to me. But what's unique about Dr. Brower is that she is both a sexual abuse survivor and also a Hebrew professor at Denver Seminary. And she's got some very insightful things to say. Let me quote on this point what she says. Although the Levite pursues his concubine in order to speak to her heart, he never speaks to her or her heart. Instead, he spends five days sustaining his own heart through the generous, life-giving hospitality of her father. The narrator, I think, wants to see that the Levite is basically forgotten about the concubine. She fades into the background, but the narrator mentions her nine times in these first nine verses of the chapter, most of the time when he doesn't even need to. So, did you notice how when the narrator would mention his father-in-law, the Levite's father-in-law, he then added the phrase, the girl's father. Well, that's redundant. We, don't, we, know who she, we know that that's her father if it's his father-in-law, right? That relationship is key. But he makes a point to spell it out for us. He's reminding us, the girl is here. The girl is here. The narrator wants to keep her in our focus, even though the Levite has completely forgotten about her for the sake of enjoying himself and the hospitality that his father-in-law is offering him. So this goes on for five days, and then they finally leave. In verses 10 to 15, we read about the sunset. The sunset. And I'm drawing your attention to that last part of the story here. They get up to go, and it's late in the day, and they're going to need to stop for the night somewhere. They approach the first city that they come to is Jebus, which is going to be later known as Jerusalem. Now, we've already read about Jebus in the book of Judges back in chapter 1. The people of Israel couldn't take that city. It remained a Jebusite, Canaanite, pagan city. And that's going to feature in this story. And as we read through, we, could sh- we should think back and think, if only the people of Israel could have taken this city, the rest of this story would never have happened. But instead, it remains a Jebusite city, and the servant recommends they stop there. But the Levite says, no, I'd rather not stop in the city of pagans or foreigners I want to go to a city that belongs to Israel. We're going to go to Gibeah. And then in verse 13, he, as they approach near to Gibeah, the sun is setting. It's getting dark. And he suggests, we're going to stop either in Gibeah or at Ramah, which is a few miles further down the road. He's wanting to make, make as much headway toward home as he can. And so he's hoping that maybe we could reach Ramah, but the sun will dictate where he ends up staying. And I remind you of that because who controls the timing of the setting of the sun? It is God. It is God who determines the timing of all of this. It is God who providentially ensures that they are where they are when they are there. 
And so the setting of the sun is going to dictate where they need to stop. The narrator draws our attention to it. The sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. The narrator points that out twice in this paragraph unnecessarily. But we really need to see that this is a Benjaminite city, an Israelite city, with Israelites living inside of it. And we need to let that fact rest on us. So they enter into Gibeah. And they settle into the square, the open square for the night. And they're hoping that someone will take them into their home. They're hoping to expect the same kind of hospitality they were treated with in Bethlehem. Curious side note, Bethlehem here is a picture of hospitality, of great hospitality with this man who offers him such hospitality. And just coming out of Christmas you got to wonder what happened by the time of the days of Jesus' birth where Jesus and his parents received no hospitality. There's no room for them at the guest house or the inn. So somewhere along the way, Bethlehem's reputation for being a place of hospitality has gone way down by the time of Jesus' coming. But nevertheless, that's just a rabbit trail. Here, he's hoping to receive the same kind of hospitality in Gibeah, but he does not receive it. They sit down in the open square, and nobody's interested in inviting them in their home, and that is weird. It's very odd and very shameful for the town of Gibeah. They don't give them the common decency of normal hospitality to invite them in for the night. And then, just at that moment, verse 16 to 21, we're introduced to this sojourner. So they're going to receive hospitality from a fellow sojourner, not a citizen of Gibeah, but somebody who's staying there temporarily, a fellow sojourner. And he happens to be from the same place that this Levite is from. He's from the hill country of Ephraim, the same place that this Levite is from. And so he notices them sitting in the open square, and he begins a conversation with them. And the Levite tells him who he is, where they've been, where they're going, and he goes out of his way to say, you know, we've got enough resources to take care of ourselves. We won't be much of a burden to you. We just need a place to stay. We've got food. We've got resources. So please, welcome us into a home to stay for the night. And then verse 20, we begin to see an ominous note. The end of verse 20, the old man tells him, Only do not spend the night in the square. So this old man knows what the city of Gibeah is like. He's been there long enough to know what the character of the Gibeonites is like. It's not good. And so he warns him, whatever you do, do not stay out in the open overnight. will not go well for you. So he welcomes him into his home. They go in and they eat and drink. And then verses 22 to 26, we read about outrageous wickedness. The heart of this story is the ugliest part of the story. Verses 22 through 26 tell us about what happens that night. As they're settling in comfortably in this home, the house is surrounded by men who are called worthless fellows, citizens of Gibeah, Benjaminite people, Israelite men, who bang on the door and call out to the old man, the master of the house, and they want to know the Levite. The story, we've read it, we know the details as it unfolds, should have reminded you of a more familiar story from Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The narrator has told this story intentionally to draw your attention there. 
several phrases are drawn exactly, precisely from that story in Genesis 19. And the narrator is wanting to portray very much this city of Gibeah as the new Sodom. The new Sodom in Israel. The city in Israel has become the new Sodom. They are acting just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah that we read about in Genesis chapter 19. The same things unfold. Some of the same words are said by the characters in the story. It is remarkable how the echoes unfold. The men beat on the door. They call out to the master of the house. They want to know. They want to know this man and Surely they are speaking not just of getting acquainted with him, but of knowing him sexually. Using the language of knowing in an intimate way. That's what freaks the master of the house out so much. That's what he's so outraged about. This outrage of homosexuality is drawn to our attention here. The word outrage is used a couple of times in the passage. Uh, It's kind of masked in some of our versions. Even the ESV uses two different words to translate the same Hebrew term. The old man tells them in verse 23, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. And then at the end of verse 24, he says, Against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. That phrase, outrageous thing and vile thing, it's the same Hebrew word underneath. Not sure why they chose to translate it differently there. But anyway, this term outrage is repeated several times in the Old Testament. Deirdre Brower again summarizes the significance of this word outrage. It occurs only 13 times in the Old Testament and is reserved for extreme acts of violation against God and human beings, including the rapes of Dinah, Tamar, and this woman of Bethlehem. Based on its usage, an outrage was considered a serious threat to the life and well-being of an individual, community, and nation that resulted in a dangerous breakdown of social, communal, and cosmic norms. This outrageous thing breaks the very fabric of nature as God created it, according to the narrator here. And according to the old man, his perspective on this is that this would be an outrageous thing. Brower again helpfully observes, knowing another sexually refers to the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, just as Adam knew Eve. However, the men of Gibeah seek to reverse the creation mandate into fruitlessness and death. Sexual expression between a husband and a wife is intended to be a reflection of fruitfulness, intimacy, and life. What the master of the house viewed as utterly wicked, vile, and outrageous was not the violation or abuse that these men wanted to do to the Levite. Nor was it that it was against a guest the old man was responsible for, some kind of breach of hospitality. After all, the female concubine was under his care as well. She was a guest under his care. He was responsible for her as well. What was wicked, vile, and outrageous was specifically that these men wanted to know this Levite man that the men of Gibeah wanted to have a sexual encounter with this Levite man. 
That is what was utterly wicked and utterly outrageous. Outside this passage, several other passages of Scripture specifically condemn homosexual behavior. And it's clear from the Genesis account of creation that homosexual behavior is contrary to God's design for sexual conduct. One reason for this is that neither sex between two men nor sex between two women can produce children and thus fulfill one of the fundamental purposes for sex and marriage. The Apostle Paul also indicates that homosexual behavior is a result of God's judgment on human idolatry and sinfulness, which is precisely what we see in the book of Judges. As judgment for their rebellious idolatry, God was handing His people over, not just to foreign oppressors, but also to greater and greater degrees of sinfulness. And Paul says that both homosexual desire and homosexual behavior are a reflection of this reality. Romans chapter 1 Verses 26 and 27 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Notice that Paul says that homosexual desires, passions, are dishonorable. And homosexual behavior is contrary to nature and shameless. It is no accident that Judges 19 highlights the immorality of some of the men of Israel right after Judges 17 and 18 highlighted the idolatry of some of the men of Israel. When people worship false gods... Immorality inevitably follows. Said differently, putting the stories of Micah and the Levites' idolatry right before a story drawing attention to a fundamental lack of hospitality, twisted sexuality, and ultimately brutality against a woman warns us that theology has real-life consequences. What you believe about God determines how you live. This is the very picture Paul paints in Romans chapter 1. Ultimately, this story goes on. The old man was so repulsed by their homosexual desire for his Levite guest that he offered them an outrageous alternative. Like Lot, generations before with the men of Sodom, he offers his own virgin daughter. And he also offers the Levite's concubine. I think we should probably imagine the Levite giving the thumbs up in the background, approving of this utterly abominable suggestion. Literally, the old man says to the Gibeonite men, violate them and do with them what is good in your eyes. At first, it seems like this old man is going to be a model of hospitality, a good guy in the story, but no... He thinks that a better alternative to allowing the Gibeonite men acting wickedly by engaging in a forced homosexual encounter with the Levite is that the Gibeonites would do with his own daughter and the Levite's concubine whatever is good in their eyes. What would be good in the eyes of these Gibeonites would not be better than what they had intended in the first place. But both the old man 
and the Levite have such a skewed perspective. They too are just doing what is right and good in their own eyes. When he realizes that the Gibeonite men are not going to accept the alternative presented by the old man, to save his own skin, the Levite then jumps up and forcefully grabs his concubine and shoves her out the door to these men. And what will it be that is good in the Gibeonites' eyes? Rape. Violent abuse and mistreatment of this helpless woman throughout the night. And one of the worst things about this story is what is only implied. Presumably, the two men and even the old man's daughter retire for the evening and have a peaceful night's sleep in the safety of this house while atrocity is going on right outside the door. The sin and the situation was so like what we read about in Genesis 19 in Sodom. But this time, it's a city in Israel. This time, it's men raised in Israel. This time, it's Abraham's descendants. Except the story in Sodom turned out quite different, didn't it? We wonder here, where are the angels so to supernaturally blind the Gibeonites? And we wonder most painfully, where is the fire and brimstone from the sky? Where is God in this moment? Later in Old Testament history, the prophets would repeatedly condemn Israel by comparing the sins of the people of Israel with the sins of the people of Sodom. And many times the prophets would announce the coming judgment of God against Israel that they would be punished the way Sodom was punished. But in God's mysterious providence, in His befuddling patience, He delays total judgment in the days of the judges. The story couldn't get any worse. It kind of does. Verses 27 to 30 tell us about the severing. After a presumably good night's sleep, her master, notice the narrator calls, that, calls her her master, no longer her husband, her master, rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, the narrator jerks us into this painful, ugly story and lets us look through the eyes of the Levite. And what does he see? His concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. The narrator notices even where her hands were settled, while the Levite, whom he calls her master, doesn't pay the slightest loving attention to her. Once he realizes she's non-responsive, he hoists her body and plops it down on the second donkey and leads it home. Then he puts his priestly training to use, He takes his knife, which he would normally have used to cut up sacrificial animals according to the Mosaic Law's prescriptions, and carefully carves up her body into 12 pieces. One piece for each tribe in Israel, including Benjamin. Packages them up and hands them to a messenger to deliver. This woman, this victim, will have no burial. 
Her father will not be aided in his mourning with a funeral. Why does he do this bizarre thing? He wants vengeance against the Gibeonites, but vengeance for what? The way he has treated this woman, it seems like he could only be looking for vengeance due to the loss of his property. Certainly this shocking action will get the attention of the people, and ironically, it will unify them in a way that was surely rare in the days of the judges. However, we get a little more detail when we remember that a few hundred years after this event, something similar would be repeated by a much more famous man. A man, again, don't miss the irony, a man from the city of Gibeah. We read about a similar act intended to stir up the people of Israel and unify them for war, done by newly crowned King Saul of Gibeah. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 7. Saul took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of Yahweh fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Note that phrase. You'll see it again in chapter 20 next week. I think we should recognize the accompanying curse that Saul makes explicit being implied by the actions of the Levite in Judges 19. He is threatening the people of Israel. If you don't gather together to avenge these Gibeonites, to avenge, to get vengeance for those against those who wronged me, then may Yahweh cause you to be slaughtered and cut in pieces. The people will respond. All the tribes except Benjamin... And we'll see the chaotic civil war that results and concludes the book of Judges next week. This turns out to be the act of judgment that God brings. And the punishment will be against all the people, not just the Gibeonites. But the last verse of this chapter summarizes the shocked response of the people to the package each one of the tribes receives. Let me raise a question and then make an observation about verse 30. And then we'll move toward closing. First... What did they see that caused their reaction? Was it the piece of the dead woman's body? Or was it the message that accompanied the package that told about what the Gibeonites had done to this woman? Glance ahead in your Bibles at chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. The end of verse 3 says, And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? Then look at the beginning of verse 4. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered. Presumably, the Levite included a note that may have only said something like, My concubine has been murdered in Gibeah. Then in the presence of the gathering, he'll provide his version of the details. Finally, notice what the people of Israel say in response in chapter 19, verse 30. Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Now, at first glance, that is simply a reference to the Exodus, particularly to the night of the Passover, which might be an important connection. But before we pull on that thread, the way they've said this, reveals something significant about the way the people of Israel are thinking about themselves as a nation, as a people. Normally, we would expect them to say or to speak of the day that Yahweh 
brought the people of Israel up from the land of Egypt. That's most often how the scriptures refer to that event. But here, there's no mention of Yahweh. No memory of that great act of redemption and salvation for the people. But it might be important also that they mention specifically that particular day, that first Passover. Deirdre Brower again insightfully observes, nothing like this had happened since the eve of the Exodus when a lamb was sacrificed and its blood smeared on the doorway of a house in order to prevent death from entering the house. By referring to the exodus from Egypt and by highlighting this concubine, fallen at the doorway with her hands on the threshold, the narrator portrays her rape, death, and dismemberment as an antithesis of the Passover sacrifice. What she means is that this Levite took his lamb this concubine, slaughtered her. I'm still a little unclear on who murdered her, whether it was the Gibeonite men and what they did to her or whether it was the Levite himself. But the Levite definitely cut her to pieces like a sacrificial offering, all to save himself from suffering. This Levite's self-centered Actions to sacrifice another human being is exactly the opposite. A demonic twisting of not only the Passover, but also the gospel message itself. God provided the lambs for the sacrifice of the Passover. God told them what to do and provided for them on that Passover night to save them from His own judgment. The gospel is a message that says you don't have to, you don't have to, and you can't do anything to save yourself. This story is ugly. Can't put a pretty bow on it. It's hard to read, it's hard to talk about, and it just gets worse the closer you look at it. The woman in the story has no voice throughout, she's treated as an object throughout the story. The religious man in the story, the Levite, almost seems to start well, going to get his estranged concubine, but then he turns out to be just out for his own pleasure and for his own security. The men of Gibeah act on their distorted sexual impulses, aggressively asserting their power and their twisted homosexual desires. The old man also seems to start well offering hospitality to the Levite and his concubine and attempting to protect them from the evil he knows the Gibeonites are capable of. But then he too betrays us, offering his own daughter out of a distorted elevation of hospitality and encouraging the Gibeonites to do whatever is good in their eyes. The story is presented to us as a warning so that we might recognize and admit that we are all capable of descending to such gross immorality. The path of following one's own heart, the path of doing whatever seems good in my eyes, ends right here. What is the remedy for such a terrible story? We could wish it didn't happen. We could wish it ended differently. Ultimately, the hope that is held out to us, even before the story unfolds, is the coming of the King. 
What can a king do for such terrible people in such terrible times? The king can accomplish redemption. The king can rule the hearts of abusers. The king can forgive the sins of abusers. The king can bring life out of death. And the king can rescue the abused. So the answer to the terrifying dilemma this story presents is redemption for the abused and the abusers among us. Sexual brokenness and distortion is on display for us in this story. Homosexual desire and violently taking advantage of a woman are drawn to our attention in this story. These things are not simply features of an ancient culture. These are the plagues of our current society. But the king has come, and the king has offered himself as a sacrifice. And what good does that do us? Jesus has died to pay the penalty for sins. That means that even men guilty of the grossest sexual abuse can be forgiven and transformed into men who honor God and honor women. Both men and women who find themselves drawn towards same-sex attraction are neither excluded from God's gracious reach nor exempt from the boundaries of sexuality provided in the Scriptures. The road of repentance in cases of sexual sin and sexual orientation may be fraught with unique challenges and unique pain, but God's grace is sufficient. Moreover, we want to be a safe community for fellow strugglers, even in areas of sexual struggle of whatever form. Both the elders of Alfred Allman Bible Church and its members are committed to walking with and supporting anyone who is seeking to turn away from sin and follow Jesus. Likewise, Jesus has died and risen from the dead to provide hope and healing to victims of abuse of all forms. Jesus was the victim of violent abuse. And He comes alongside and provides never-ceasing grace for victims. If you've been a victim, you need to know that Jesus really can heal, really can heal the brokenness in your life. And you need to know also that He often, if not always, uses His body, the church, to bring about that healing. It is a horrific reality, though, that churches have not always been safe. Indeed, we must be more direct. It is a travesty that church members and church leaders have been guilty of all forms of abuse. We can be like this Levite. But where we fail, Jesus does not. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He walks with us in our suffering. And He provides forgiveness for our failures and healing for our brokenness. What more could you ask for from a king? You can ask one thing more. You can ask for Him to end it all. The suffering, the abuse. And He will. 
He's coming. Let's pray and call for him to come. Father, we are your children, and we experience the brokenness of this world. We have been victims of abuse of various kinds, and we confess that we have been perpetrators of abuse of various kinds. We need you to bind up the brokenhearted. We need you to heal the wounds. And we thank you that you have made a way that all this can be wiped away, cleansed, so that shame and guilt can be no more. We long for the day when all our tears and all our scars no longer give us the grief that they do now. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come soon, come quickly, and let us be diligent to look for your coming and to be busy about what you've called us to do, to be agents of healing, agents of restoration in this world until that day.